Please join me, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And as you're making your way there, I've got a few things I want to share just kind of as far as direction of the church, where we're at. Uh, I want to first talk about that EQUIP conference that Bo mentioned. That's coming up January 14th and 15th. It's a Monday and Tuesday night. Um, and we are hosting it. And, and our desire is to make this a yearly thing. And so this year is going to be a trial and error, I'm sure. We're going to learn a lot. We're going to see how we can make it better. But our, my heart truly is to... Uh, um, start putting some of my seminary background and training to good use. And as Bo said, we're going to be looking this year at postmodernism and Christianity. And uh, I did my thesis work, I said, on, on how postmodernism has affected theology and uh, things we've got to be aware of in it. But what we're looking at in this conference is more of, of what's going on in our culture because the church can recognize it's changed but we don't always know why or how. And that's really what we're seeking to expose. Our culture is in a postmodern state, and it's affecting every institution in our culture. And the church so often is slow to recognize and slow to respond. I, as a pastor, as a shepherd, want to counteract that as far as I can. Um, immediately with this church, and as, as best I can, I want to help churches in our area be equipped to understand the cultural changes that have happened over the last 30 or 40 years and how um, not only to integrate, but how to challenge, how to recognize, how to oppose. There's much that needs to be opposed. There's much that you can learn from it. But So I'm really excited about this conference. Invite your friends. It's, um, like Bo said, it's meant for everyone. Everyone's invited. Um, I specifically have a heart to want to train up and, and equip pastors and church leaders especially. Uh, as they're going to be leading their own churches. So please sign up and be a part of that. Um, it's going to be fun. I'm really excited about it. Um, <clears throat> so today I'm going to preach again on deacons. If you haven't been with us the last year and a half, two years, um, I, I started the church and did a long series on church leadership. I've taught through deacons, I think it was last February, in the office of deacons. But where we're at now is we've gone through this process of appointing um, elder candidates. Uh, that would be Dwayne and Bo and myself. In the last several months, we've been meeting weekly almost and going through the qualifications as well as a bunch of other stuff. And so now we've come to a place uh, of a twofold progression forward. We, as, as far as elder candidates, are going to move into our third phase where We've examined each other. We've confessed a lot of sin. We've confessed a lot of weaknesses in the flesh. Um, and now we're presenting ourselves to you guys to do the same for us. And so we're asking the church to take January to, uh, to examine us. If you have things that you've seen in our character, in our speech, even if it's one instance that caused you to stumble in some way, this is your month to come to us and say, hey, you know, there's this one time you did this or you said this, and, and it's our opportunity to make things right, to restore a relationship, do whatever it needs be um, to, uh, to become above reproach. And so we're asking the church now, as far as the elder candidates are concerned, to take the month of January to really examine us and, um, and be honest. You know, if there's some issues that you, you see in us, talk to us. Um, it's our desire to want to be godly. It's our desire to want to make things right. 
Um, we can only lead insofar as where we're willing to go in character and in truth. And so this is your opportunity to examine us. At the same time, we're going to take the month of January now to ask you to also consider men who are, in your mind, qualified deacon candidates. And so I'm going to teach on deacons this morning again, what the office is and what the qualifications are. And beginning next week, you'll find in your bulletins, Rhonda's going to start putting um, recommendation slip or something, I don't know how she's formatted it, where you're going you're gonna to write down names and why you think they're qualified candidates and then slip it in the offering box in the back. Now, I, again, you're going to have all of January to, to do this, and so um, you don't, don't feel like you have to have a recommendation next week. If you, if you want to prayerfully consider people, um, watch them in silence. I, I love the Scripture's teaching of you watch and observe, um, and because people don't know that you're watching them, and uh, it's, it's not a performance. More than likely, people you're going to recommend have already been... Um, behaving, if that's the right word, that's not the right word, practicing what a deacon would practice. But uh, nonetheless, we're going to look at the qualifications again before we do that, because I want you to know what the scripture would have a deacon be. And um, as I had said with, with elders, if, if there's someone who doesn't meet these qualifications, they might not be qualified yet, but it doesn't mean they won't be qualified ever. And so keep that in mind as well. We, uh, we've talked about how in churches we've been a part of in the past, deacons were appointed once every 10 years maybe. And we're going to be very different in this church. Um, we're going to keep this process open all the time because our body, the nature of it, is a fluctuating body. And so um, we believe there's people who come in and out of our congregation who are here for maybe two, three years who are qualified deacons. And if that's the amount of time we have them, that's the Lord's provision for us. And that's okay. So we're not going to have just a closed period and then once we see the need, oh, we've got to appoint more deacons. When we see, uh, when we see uh, people being raised up, then we're going to act on it. So it's going to be different for us, but that's okay. I think it's good. All right? So 1 Timothy chapter 3 is where Paul outlines the qualifications for the office of deacon. Begin reading with me, if you will, in verse 8. We're going to read through verse 13. Paul writes, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, and not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we just want to pause now as we look at these qualifications for this special, um, important office that you call people to fill. Um, God, we thank you that your spirit has already been working in so many to be servants, which is the true biblical model of leadership. It's servant leadership. It's laying yourself down 
for those whom you would serve as Jesus. Our Lord said, those who would be greatest among you shall be least of all. And Father, the office of deacon models that so beautifully. While the world would look at this and say, oh, that's weak leadership, Father, you say, no, that's strength. And so we want men of, of character, Father, and we pray that you raise them up, that this church might walk as you desire your church to be structured and in the character with which you want them to walk. So we ask that you move and you lead. Bring this body, not just leadership, but this body into agreement and unity as we, we move forward with these offices. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Deacons, all right. So for the sake of those who've joined us within the last year, deacons and elders are the two offices that, that the scriptures clearly lay out as far as the church administration, church government. And um, <clears throat> deacons, the word deacon literally means servant. Okay, so it's a servant leadership position. Scripture definitely teaches and recognizes deacons as an office in the scripture. The first glimpse I think that we get of the, the office of deacon is found in Acts chapter 6. While I don't think that Acts 6 is necessarily the first deacons, it's the first glimpse of the work that deacons would do. And uh, that's where the church had been growing. The, the body and, and the number of people became too numerous for the apostles to reach and minister to. And there was beginning to be neglect. And so the apostles told the church, you pick from among yourselves seven men, and then they give a list of qualifications, and we will give our approval. And so that's what happened. The, the office of deacon was actually picked by the body, and the, uh, the apostles were in agreement with the men that they put forward. So that's, this may be new for you as well. That's how we're going to approach it. Um, as far as the elders were concerned, Paul told Titus, hey, you appoint elders in every city. But when it came to deacons, the apostle said, you, church, you choose seven men among yourselves. The apostles definitely were in agreement with it, right? Because they laid hands on them and prayed for them. But in Philippians chapter 1 is where we kind of see the first formal recognition, I think, of the office of deacons, Paul opens his letter to the Philippians saying this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus. There's a first group within the church, the saints, the laity, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. There's the other two. So there's the laity, there's the overseers, elders, and there's deacons that Paul formally recognizes. So it's definitely an office recognized in the church. And I made the point when I first preached this back in, in February of last year, or this year, I guess, um, that there, there's a movement in our culture that you're probably familiar with. It's, it's more of a volunteerism. And that's not what this is. And, I, and this is important to understand. While the, the body of the church is supposed to be involved in serving, we're, we're not simply seeking volunteers. The church... When, when, when people are born again, they are joined to the body of Christ. And so it's not just volunteer, it's an obligation. Serving the body is not a choice. It's the duty of the Christian. Deacons are those who are doing that work, and we recognize it. But this is really for everyone. And that's what I open with, is 
I, I, I hope to see that everyone in our church would be qualified because the, the outlines of the qualifications is really what all of us should be aspiring to be. What we are seeking to recognize is those who are actually walking in it now to lead. Okay? So it's definitely an office. It's not simply volunteering. This is the church's duty. We are to be serving in the kingdom of God and seeking that first. Okay? So back in 1 Timothy, Paul opens in verse 8, deacons likewise. This is, uh, that word likewise is a transition, and, and we're not going to go back and look at the qualifications for elders that he sets up in verses 1 through 7, but it's, it's an introduction to, okay, there's the first group, elders, that he's talking about. Likewise, deacons. Here's the second group. So he's transitioning to this new office, first elders, then deacons. It, it denotes that series, okay? Um, <clears throat> deacons, like I said, is, literally means servant. And this office truly captures what leadership is in a church. Literally, the word comes from a word that means laboring in the dust. It gives you a picture of the deacon, Okay? Not only are they humble, but they're willing to get dirty and serve and continue serving if needed. It's laboring in the dust. Jesus said himself, I did not come to be served, but to serve. So this is outlining for us a true biblical leader. They are always servant-minded, ground-level, laboring in the dust. And the first qualification that he says a deacon must be is dignified. Unfortunately, this word dignified is almost extinct in the character of people today. And it's sad. I love this word as I've studied this in preparation again, as I studied it the first time. This is a powerful word depicting the character of a deacon, and it's also of an elder. But what this, this word is, it's an extremely elevated characteristic in the language of Scripture. It denotes someone who is both serious in mind, but also they have a quality of life that is equally as serious. So they are set apart in their behavior, but they're also set apart in their thinking in how they evaluate life and how they engage in the circumstances of life. In other words, this qualification shows someone who's not a grown-up with a child's mentality. And we see people like that. We see people, hey, they might be charismatic, they might be very attractive and appealing, but they're, they're childlike in their mentality, in their mind. They would be disqualified. It doesn't mean that they might not be qualified someday when they come to maturity and how they think and how they approach life, how they approach church. But they've got to have both a seriousness in their mind and a serious approach to how they live. In Greek literature, this word inspired worship. That's how powerful this word is. In fact, if you're familiar with any Greek uh, literature, Achilles, the great warrior, this was the word used of Achilles. It inspired awe. It inspired worship in people because of he was dignified in Greek literature. There's a weightiness, in other words, to this word. 
In fact, we get our word grave from it. So that gives you the idea of dignified. There's, it's not that they, they're, they're just this kind of, you know, like there's no fun to them at all. That's not what I'm saying. But they approach life and they approach leadership very seriously. They understand the weightiness, the gravity of what they're doing. This word invites praise. It invites reverence. In other words, someone who's dignified would be someone that you, you look up to when you interact with them and you, you're like, man, those people, they've just got their act together, their life, they're engaged in the right things. They don't live frivolously. And they don't allow their mind to just dwell on frivolous, useless things. They engage weighty and important issues. They don't spend their time on nonsense. There's a reverence about this person. They are set apart. They're lifted up, not out of pride, but because of the quality of life and mind that they possess. So you see, right away, the first quality for a, for a deacon is pretty high. You want someone in leadership who's going to be dignified and not childlike, right? That's who I want. That's who Scripture says, first, they need to be. But second, Paul goes on, not only are they to be dignified, they're to be uh, not double-tongued. Literally, this is the person who says one thing and means or does another. He can speak out of both sides of his mouth. He can affirm this truth, and he can also affirm the opposite truth. He can give his yes, and then he can give his no and break it. The person who's double-tongued represents all sides by their words. In theological circles, they would be a theological chameleon, as I've heard it said. They can go into any theological circle and say, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. And you don't really know what they believe. We're going to see they must hold firmly in conviction to the mysteries of the faith. doesn't mean they're able to teach them, but they must hold with conviction the teaching of Scripture. So the one who's not double-tongued is the one who guards themselves in what they say. Their yes is yes, their no is no, they're faithful to their word, even if it costs them. That's important to understand. Because there's sometimes when you have to affirm something that will be costly to you. This is definitely true in church leadership. If a church is walking in Christ, they will be opposed in some way at some point. Any servant leadership position, they must hold with conviction the truths of Scripture. And their yes must be yes. They must not be double-tongued. People who are double-tongued are extremely destructive and untrustworthy within the midst of a body. Jesus said it, a house divided cannot stand. Our word as Christians must mean something. How much more for those who are in leadership? If a leader says something and fails in it, they hold and own up to their failure. That's being not double-tongued. They fulfill what they say they will, and if they don't, they confess it, they make it right. I love this point that 
that this self-incrimination aspect of this quality, even to our detriment, if, if I fail, I fail, and I come clean with it, that self-incrimination was one of the tests of the authenticity of Scripture. We read in Scripture all the time very incriminating statements. For instance, Jesus rebuking Peter, Satan, get behind me. That would have been incredibly embarrassing for Peter to have to read, but it was true. Peter had to own up to it. The same with his denial of our Lord. And so, someone who is, is uh, true to their word, even when it costs them, even when it hurts, that's a strength of character. That's someone who would fulfill this quality. They're not double-tongued. They don't try and hide or gloss over their failures. They own up to it. So they must be true to their word. This is also, again, unfortunately, almost extinct in people. It's so easy to lie or, or elevate ourselves just beyond who we really are. We must not be double-tongued. We just sang about the grace of God. Someone who's double-tongued and is not able to own up to their failures, for instance, they have to mature still in God's grace. They don't know it yet. Because when you understand God's grace, you understand, you know, I'm not condemned. I can confess this. Be healed, be forgiven, be cleansed. That's a strength of character. <clears throat> so third, in verse 8, Paul says they must not be addicted to much wine. This characteristic was also said of the elders. And what it's speaking to is the abuse and the incessant use of alcohol. It's not speaking to the use of alcohol. Okay? Uh, and I want to make that clear. Uh, scripture doesn't condemn drinking wine. It condemns the addiction and abuse of it. An alcoholic. It also denotes someone who cannot function apart from it. There's people who have stressful days at work. Stressful days come to all of us. But the person who has to go home and they have to have their beer to unwind, that would be addicted to wine. They're relying, in other words, on this rather than Christ. And so they must be free from that addiction. People use alcohol as a stress relief. Or worse, there are people who literally can't function without it. And so, I think in application you can obviously apply this not just to alcohol, but to anything else. It goes beyond alcohol. So those who've given themselves to alcohol or any other such thing to prop themselves up, to get themselves through a difficult time, a, a stressful situation, whatever it is, are exposing a character issue that needs to be addressed before they'd be qualified for this office. So the, in, in the opposite, those who are not addicted to wine, they might understand their freedom to drink it, but they also understand that if my freedom causes a brother to stumble, I'm not going to do it. They're more concerned about building their brother up rather than holding on to their freedom to drink wine. You see the wisdom in that. Paul expounds on that to the Corinthian church because they didn't understand, hey, yes, you have freedom to drink wine, but if it's causing your brother to stumble and you're tearing down the body of Christ, cut it out. 
I would rather speak and do things that build up in love. So they're wise, they're self-controlled, they recognize the best use of their freedom in Christ. We want to be careful as a church to maintain, yes, you have freedom, but there's a wise use of freedom. And sometimes it means not doing something that you are free to do. So they must not be addicted to much wine. Lastly, in verse 8, Paul says they are not to be greedy for dishonest gain. Again, this was said of the elders. Literally, what this is talking about is the excessive desire or lust for gain. And it can be any kind of gain. It can be money. It can be possessions. It can be position to put yourself forward. In other words, that lust, that desire for whatever that gain might be, dictates your decision-making. There are those, and there are plenty of examples, who get into church leadership for gain. I've been reading, like I said, on church history. This happened very early on in church history. When the church and state wed, people got into leadership because, hey, the parish at Rome, you could really excel in power and prestige and wealth. So many people... On the click of a button, you can see on TV who are disqualified over this one thing. They are simply pursuing ministry for greedy gain. So it's pursuing money or any gain as an object in and of itself. The opposite then would be someone who's free from a love of money, free from a love of materialism. Let me ask you, why is this important for, for leadership, for a deacon? If you remember in Acts chapter 6, what was happening in the church was that in Acts 5 and Acts 4, people were selling everything they had. And they were literally bringing all the proceeds and laying it at the apostles' feet. There's thousands of people in the church and thousands of dollars being provided. And it was the deacons who were entrusted to dish out the proceeds to people who needed it. So a deacon must be free from a love of money. Why? Because they're going to be handling a lot of it. They must not love this. Otherwise, it will be a snare and a trap to them. And it will disqualify them, even potentially shipwreck their faith, as Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 6. So that's why it's important. Deacons are going to be in the service ministry of the church. They're going to be involved in money. They're going to be involved in helping people. There will always be present in our flesh the temptation to take. And if you don't think it's there, it doesn't take long to find example after example after example of church leaders who've fallen because of this, because of a love for gain. I also said when I preached this the first time, I want to repeat this now, is that this person is not someone who's bribable. Um, and this happens in church. <laughs> I gave the example of the pastor who spoke on, uh, uh, on giving and, and not having a love for money and all this stuff, and a very wealthy man at the end of the service came up to him and said, convicted, right? The arrow hit its mark in this case. He came up to the pastor, started rebuking him, and said, I've provided this whole church with all the stained glass windows and never did it, you know. The pastor simply said, well, you can have it all back. I love that. The pastor was not bribable. But that happens in leadership. There will be people who think they're influential simply because they have possessions. 
and they will seek to influence the direction of the church because of that. This person has, has to have the fortitude to say, no, your money doesn't speak. Your character and life do. And the Word of God. And so this person is someone who's not bribable. They don't show partiality, in other words, because of the influence of the wealthy. James, the book of James, speaks much about this quality. The church James wrote to had to be rebuked. Why? Because they were playing favoritism to the rich and giving them the best seats while the poor were having to sit over on the side. And James says, do you not know that God's chosen the poor to be rich in faith? You dishonor him and God honors him. So, it shows the character of a man who's lined up with the Lord. The Lord himself chose to walk amongst this earth not having a place to lay his own head. So, elders and deacons must be free from this love of stuff, not greedy for dishonest gain. Moving on, verse 9. It says, They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So the mystery here is the secret um, that God has now revealed in Christ, the gospel. He talks about in Colossians, Ephesians. Um, The gospels was the revelation of God's plan, the unveiling of it. It's a mystery to those who still don't believe. That's why Jesus spoke in parables. So, for the deacon, they must hold to this mystery with a clear conscience. The faith is speaking about the whole of Christian revelation. It's uh, it's the truths that have been revealed. Now, I want to make this point clear. There are truths and mysteries to the faith that are mysteries still. They go beyond human comprehension, but they don't go against human comprehension. So the deacon understands, yes, I don't understand the Trinity. I don't get the Incarnation, but I firmly believe it. And I can hold it in faith, because it's revealed, and I take it on that authority alone. This is... So the deacon, this, this is what distinguishes a deacon from an elder, in my opinion, is that the deacon simply has to hold with conviction the mysteries of the faith. An elder's got to try and teach on it. <laughs> so an elder uh, is distinguished in the ability to expound on the Word of God. And so we do our dead level best to teach on these mysteries, and it's, uh, we fall way short sometimes. But the deacon is not to be gifted as a teacher. And so someone who in no way, if, if, if I were to bring a, a deacon candidate, for instance, up here, and put them before you to speak on the word, and they just clam up and they can't speak, does it mean they're disqualified as a deacon? Not at all. They're not called to that office. They're called to serve. And so, keep that in mind. This is what distinguishes the deacons from the elders. Elders must be able to teach. Deacons do not. But they are called to the same character. But why is this important? Why do they have to hold firmly with conviction? Because the elders are going to be expounding on these mysteries. And if the deacon is not firm in his conviction, what will happen is they'll be undercutting the elders as they try to expound on it. Again, a house divided cannot stand. You can't have leadership divided. If a deacon is not firm in the faith, even if they can't explain it, but if they don't hold to it with conviction... They don't need to be in the office because it will be butting heads with those who are seeking to teach 
authoritatively on the scriptures. So, what does this mean? It means someone who's new to the faith, who's a new believer, they're not ready to be a deacon. Doesn't mean they have to know everything, but it does mean they have to be firm in conviction with it. Okay? We don't want to have leadership divided or, or undercut. In verse 10, Paul goes on, And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So, what we're going to do is we're going to put a sheet before every deacon candidate and they have 20 minutes to answer every question. If they miss more than 8 or 10 of them, they're done. No, that's not the kind of test I'm talking about. I had, I had some pretty grave looks out there like, oh, hope no one nominates me, you know. That's not the kind of test Paul's talking about. Um, the test is simply your life. People are watching how you live. And if you're matching up with what the Scripture's saying, hey, you might be a deacon candidate. It's best to, uh, that the, the candidate doesn't actually know they're being tested. <laughs> but nonetheless, we will, uh, with the deacon candidates we get... Uh, we're going to walk them through these qualifications as well privately, same way as, as Dwayne and Bo and I have done. Um, and it, it's, it's hard. <laughs> it's not easy, but it's good. It's really good. So that's what this is referring to. In other words, Paul's, Paul's trying to prohibit people from just being propped up in church leadership very quickly. That's a foolish approach. However, I'll say it this way, I think a church can be too slow to recognize a candidate as well. Someone who has joined themselves to a body and started serving in that body and their character has proven itself, as far as we can tell, they should be considered. Whether that's in two or three months' time, it could be very quickly. Some people jump in and, man, it's just evident the Lord is in them and the Lord is using them. We need to be discerning in that. But, nonetheless... They need to be tested. There's a period where they need to be watched, and there's a period where, hey, let's walk through this with you. The word blameless here, um, at the end of verse 10, that let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless, it's the same word Paul used in Titus 1.6 for the elders. And it was a judicial claim. It was a judicial idea. In other words, um, after examining your life, if no one can bring a charge against you, legally, you haven't stolen from, from a business partner, you haven't, um, you haven't broken something and not paid, you know, whatever the case is, if, if, if there's nothing that can be charged against you in, in a judicial way, hey, then let them serve as a deacon. <clears throat> Verse 11, he moves on. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So, for those of you who were here, there's two interpretations to this. Um, the ESV, which I teach out of, and teaches, uh, says their wives also, likewise, must be dignified. In the English, the, their wives is actually not um, in the Greek, that's provided in the English. And so there's another interpretation, literally interpreting the Greek, that says women, likewise, must be dignified. But I'm not going to go into that. I've taught on that, 
and where we came to as a church was we were not in unity on it. Um, I, my, my stance was I don't think that this is talking about wives. I think it's just talking about women deacons. There's a whole body of scholars that says we think it's best to interpret this as wives. Because we're not in unity, I'm going to teach as though it's talking about wives. Um, the problem is, is, is you can look up the Greek words and it's not an issue of understanding the Greek words. It's an issue of context and it's difficult. So, um, so I'm going to teach it for unity's sake until we come to a better unity and have time as a church, as leadership. Because in leadership, we're not all on the same page on it either. And it's not a point of division against us. But we, we have different interpretations of this passage. And so to maintain unity, I'm going to speak as though for now, this is speaking about wives. Again, it says, let their wives be dignified. It's the same word used in verse 8 of the male. There's a graveness to this wife. There's a weightiness in how she conducts herself, how she lives, how she serves within the church. She's not loose with her lifestyle. She's not loose with her words when acting and fellowshipping amongst the body, as well as outside the body. Paul writes, they must not be slanderers. Slanderers is diabolos. You might know that Greek word. It's one of the names of Satan. Slander is diabolical because it divides, it casts between. That's what diabolos means. In fact, there's a good passage in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, where we see Satan doing just this. He is coming before the Lord, accusing Joshua, casting in between. Literally, it means to throw over or across. And in this sense, throw accusations, throwing defamations at someone. So the wife must keep her tongue. There's also a sense here that um, these defamations, these, these accusations are malicious. Now anybody who's been maliciously accused knows how devastating that can be. Many people never recover from it. And so that's why this is such an important quality. Words, as James talks about, can set the world on fire. And those who don't have their tongue tamed can do much damage, especially if they're in a position of leadership. So the wives must not be slanderers. It's a very serious issue. They must be sober-minded, he says. We get our word temperate from this. It's the opposite of intoxication or every kind of fuzzy thinking. In other words, just as the man is to be clear-headed, clearly thinking, so the wife is to be. Again, doesn't mean she has to be a teacher, but she's got to think clearly. There's clarity of mind. It's not simply from the influence of alcohol, but of anything that creates fuzziness. And, and you all have lived life enough to know there's lots of situations that we encounter as people that make it difficult to think clearly on how or what to do. This person is able to cut through it, maybe with, with time, but they're circumspect. That word circumspect is one of my favorite biblical words. They, they look everywhere before taking a step. They don't just charge off and, and you know, set the trail ablaze. They're circumspect. They're wise in the steps they take so that they know the steps they're taking are firmly established. In other words, this would be the opposite of a youthful kind of carelessness. 
You see this in children, man, they're just ready to play, and boom, they go outside. Nick uh, was a perfect example of this. Our son, not quite two, man, he saw that snow yesterday. We opened the front door. The girls had gotten all dressed and ready to go, and he's in his little onesie pajamas with no shoes, no pants, no socks, and he just runs out there. Yeah! Yeah, he's not sober-minded yet. We're teaching him. But he learned pretty quick. He ran right back in. So, so it's someone who's mature. Okay? They, they're not quick to react. They're not quick to say something. They're free from any kind of excessive influence in their thinking. In other words, they've got their passions, their desires, their issues under control. So the, not one passion is overriding everything else and causing them. Kind of like an alcoholic. That desire for alcohol controls decision-making. They're free from this. They're sober-minded. And then he says, lastly, they're faithful in all things, literally trustworthy in all things. Again, this is a very broad category, intentionally. They're free. They're trustworthy with money. They're trustworthy in their character. They're trustworthy in their counsel. They're trustworthy in service. They're trustworthy in ministry. It, it literally will touch on every aspect of your life. You're a trustworthy person. You are who you are. And we can rely on that. So the wife also has some examination to, to go under. <clears throat> Moving on, he says in verse 12, that a deacon must be the husband of one wife. Now of all the qualifications, both for an elder and a deacon, this is probably the most controversial. And we talked about it again. You can go on our podcasts and, and listen to me expound in depth on where we land as a church, it basically comes down to one or two questions. The phrase itself means a one-woman man. Again, it's not an issue of understanding the Greek words. It's an issue of how do we understand the context of this. The Greek words are literally really easy to interpret. A one-woman man. But the question arises, is this one woman ever or one woman at a time? And the church has been divided on this position throughout the entire history of the church. Many interpret this to mean one woman ever, and so if a man was married and his wife dies, he's never to remarry again. We don't land there because Scripture actually says he's free to remarry. So we think that interpretation is not biblical. It binds people to something Scripture expressly doesn't bind them to. Um, in fact, Paul encourages young widows to remarry. So we don't think it's right to say that this is talking about one woman ever. Well, one woman at a time. Does that mean um, divorce is the, is the main issue? Does that mean someone who's been divorced cannot be a deacon or an elder? Well, again, where we land with this, and I walk through it, there's three specific cases in Scripture where divorce was permitted. In the case of adultery, according to Matthew 19.9, Jesus said, except for the issue of adultery, they're to remain together. In the case of an unbeliever divorcing a believer in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 12-15, Paul says if, if two people are married and one comes to faith and the other doesn't, if they consent to live together, great. But if the unbeliever says, see ya, and puts his believing wife or husband away, Paul says they're free. They're not bound. The third would be in the case of the death of a spouse. The widow is free to remarry. Romans 7, 1-3 and 1 Corinthians 7, 39 make it explicitly clear 
they're free to remarry. They're not bound by that law. Uh, they're not an adulteress, in other words, if their spouse dies and they remarry. They're free to remarry. And so, one woman at a time, um, we take that to mean just because someone's been divorced doesn't necessarily mean they're disqualified. Um, I don't think Scripture teaches that. But nonetheless, it is a case-by-case examination. It might mean if you've been divorced, you're never going to be qualified as a deacon or elder. That might be the consequence of that divorce. It might not be. Okay? So that's, for more on that, um, I'm not going to take up the rest of our time. It's a big study. Go find our, uh, on our podcast the sermon I preach on that, and I give a lot more depth to it if, if you need more questions, or you can come talk to me afterward. All right? So verse 12, moving on. Let the deacons each be the husband of one wife. Then he says, managing their children and their own households well. So here we get into the real test of any leader is looking at the quality of their family life. This really is where you see who a person is, is in their home. We can all come together and put on a show. It's in the home that you really see who the person is and who the couple is. So this is speaking to the quality of their family life, the greatest window of who we are. When someone's kids are out of control in public, what that's really a commentary of is they're out of control at home and the parents aren't exercising the authority and control in the home. It's not to say that kids aren't going to be uh, have their moments. Kids are kids, right? So we're not going to be so strong-handed that man, oh, your kid, he yelled. Yeah, they do that sometimes. <laughs> Mine, over and over. But generally, your kids are, are in control, okay? You have authority over them. They recognize and respect the authority of the mom and dad. Um, when you see a family whose kids just completely disrespect their mother and father, what it's showing you is that the parents haven't established authority over their own children yet. How can they exercise authority over church? They can't. You've got to be able to, to instill that within the home first. Again, kids are going to be kids. They're going to act out. They're going to um, dishonor or disrespect the authority of a parent. But in general, you can look at someone's kids and say, they're good kids. They're, they're in control. They, they respect their mother and father. They should be, the parents should be clearly set up as the authority within their home. The word manage is a military term of an officer managing his men. So it speaks to both the manner and the character in which that person manages. Its effects you must take into account. In other words, there are certain management styles where, uh, where the manager manages with harshness, with strong-arming, with threats, right, to get compliance. That's not the biblical way of managing a home. Sometimes you need law, sometimes you need grace. Depends on the situation. So the mother and the father, they're, they're good parents, they're loving, they're training, they're praying with their children, they're teaching their children the Scriptures, and in turn, the children show their respect for their mother and father. Children are not sinless and perfect, but in general, you can see whether they're managing their household well. This is a big deal. Discipline is a big issue in our culture today, and it doesn't happen very often. 
and you can see it in how children are raised. And so I'm not, I'm not going to open the Pandora's box right now of, of how to discipline, but clearly Scripture teaches we are to discipline. And that's part of managing a household. There's going to be times in church, unfortunately, where we have to exercise church discipline, Matthew 18. If you don't exercise discipline on your children, you are surely not going to do it within a church context. Um, but what this really speaks of is, um, Proverbs says, he who hates his child withholds the rod from them. And so discipline is a loving, kind gesture to turn a wayward son or child or child of God from sin and bring them back onto a path of health and righteousness. Moving on to verse 13, we'll end here just in time. Paul says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So those who serve gain a good standing. Good standing here refers, I think, to the respect from the church whom the deacon is a servant of. In other words, you see all throughout church history men who've served well gain the respect of those they're serving. Paul would say it this way, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Right? His lifestyle, his conduct, the way he held everything was worthy of imitation. That's a good standing. People who are deacons want to attain to that. Not out of a prideful, boasting way, but to say, hey, I've given you an example to follow. Follow it. It's good. It's right. It's pleasant. You gain the appreciation from those who you serve. Great confidence in this verse, I believe, is a reference to the fruitfulness of this kind of service and servant. There is a mystery many don't experience in the Christ life because they never give themselves to serve like Christ served, and that's by giving yourself. The great confidence that a deacon has is that he's poured himself out on the behalf of you. And there's nothing he's ashamed of. Paul would wrap up his own life and ministry this way. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And he followed that with a great confidence saying, and I know there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. That's the confidence the deacon gains. When you serve and you give yourself for you, there's no greater confidence that a servant of the church, the living bride of Christ, can gain. Scripture is not simply an issue of knowing its doctrine, knowing its precepts of word and tongue. Scripture is also an issue of deed and power or truth. It's to be embodied and lived. And the deacon who embodies these truths and lives them there's great power and fruitfulness in that, and great confidence in his faith. So, that concludes the one list we have in Scripture for the qualifications of a deacon. You can now, you've been refreshed on it, um, the next step for you is to consider these passages. If you need to go listen to this sermon again, as you consider over this next month, people who would be qualified, take it very seriously. The office of deacon, the office of elder, is not something that people are appointed to out of favorites, right? I mean, my parents are here. I'm going to poke them. I'm sure they 
they won me as a pastor, right? But they, they'd be prone to, to be favorite toward me. But they need to examine me and be honest in their examination, right? So do you. Um, and <clears throat> we're not going to instill people in positions that they're not qualified for, God willing. We want men who are living the Christ life because that is for your benefit. That's for your benefit. And uh, we want a church that's healthy, that's strong biblically, and it starts with leadership. There's such a firm conviction in Scripture, it will be like people like priests, Hosea said. People will only rise to where the priest takes them. So, we seek godly leaders in this church. So with that, I'll invite the worship team up. We're going to sing one more song and thank the Lord for His faithfulness to us and all of His character and work. Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Father, that it doesn't waver, that it's living and active, that it cuts and pierces to the very division of soul and spirit. Father, it's sometimes difficult for us to come and lay ourselves open and bare to be examined by You. But the Father, that's what I'm asking of our church. Father, that they would first be examined by the Word of God. As we've just looked at these qualifications for deacons, they're really qualifications of who we should be as Christians. And a deacon is simply someone who is being that. But we all should be. And if we're not, Lord, as we let the Scripture interrogate and examine us, probe the depths of our hearts, our minds, those things that we're withholding from You, Father, I pray that we confess if we find ourselves falling short. Father, that You would refine us, You'd mature us as Christians, as children, and who we're supposed to be. And You'd make us qualified through repentance, through confession, through faith. You'd cleanse us, cause us to walk in righteousness, Lord. And we might simply be the bride who we're supposed to be in our time on earth for a world to see the beauty, the fragrance of Christ in us. Father, we want to stop as we sing this last song and thank you for your covenant faithfulness to us. It's unwavering, it's unending. It endures to the end, even when we do not. As Paul said, you are faithful even when we're faithless because you cannot deny yourself. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. And we're going to sing about it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.